The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. It's our show about the changing nature of work and how that work is changing us. I'm a perfectionist. I know this about myself. I can be exacting to a fault, and I come down too strongly when my very high standards aren't met. And the person I come down on hardest, well, it's not Sarah, who's in the production booth, although she may disagree. It's actually myself, of course. Like right now, I'm just so annoyed with myself that I didn't send out our newsletter this week. I usually send out our newsletters on Mondays, and it was a holiday Monday. I was on an epic road trip with my toddlers. They wanted snacks and books and to get out of the car. We were staying at a hotel, and I'm still kicking myself that I didn't just set the alarm for 5.30, wake up before the kids at the hotel, pull out my laptop to work for just 20 minutes. I think of perfectionism as a problem I have, a thing to fix. Couldn't I just chill a little? But also, like, couldn't I have just gotten up a tiny bit earlier? Really, though. So I was so excited to talk to this week's guest, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. Catherine is a psychotherapist, and she's developed a specialty in women who present outwardly as if they're doing it all and often feel like they're crumbling inside. Perfectionists. Catherine has just published a book, and she's called it The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control. And she takes a novel and empowering approach to perfectionism. It's not a beast to tame. It's a tool we can put to use. But first, we have to understand it. In this episode, Catherine asks us to rethink balance in our lives. She offers us a framework to better understand our own relationship to perfectionism. Spoiler, there are a lot of different ways to be a perfectionist. And she invites us to identify what we want, like what we actually want, and move toward it. Just to make sure we're all starting on the same page here, I asked Catherine to define a perfectionist for us. Here she is. I think the colloquial definition of perfectionist is really reductive and oversimplified of like someone who wants things to be perfect all the time. And that's simply not the case. And we're trying to squeeze this concept of perfectionist and perfectionism into this little ring box when it's such a kaleidoscopic topic. So for me, the way I define a perfectionist is somebody who more often than not notices the gap between the reality plunked down in our laps and this ideal, right? Unique to our species, we have the cognitive capacity to like understand and see what's happening in real time, but also imagine this other world where things are happening in in a better and improved way. And perfectionists are people who not only see that gap, but who feel a compulsion to try to actively bridge that gap. Right. And again, I think we all have a little bit of perfectionists in us, but perfectionists are people who have that experience in a patterned way. I guess the first question I would have is, is this gendered? Because what you described to me feels like an experience that I could probably point out in all of my female friends, certainly myself. I don't think perfectionism itself 
presents more in one gender or the other. But what I do think is the way that it's expressed and the way you know, women in particular are pressured to be perfectionistic in certain contexts is highly gendered. Right. Makes a lot of sense for me, Catherine, because I think of my perfectionist tendencies as something to be fixed within me. Um, How would you rethink that? Well, what's really interesting about having the identity of a perfectionist is that it's an enduring identity marker. And this I found to be true, not just in my practice, but it's also backed up in the research world, which is like, when you think of yourself as a perfectionist, you tend to think of yourself that way throughout your entire lifetime. So it's similar to calling yourself a romantic or an activist. It's much more of an integral part of your identity. And in the same way that I would never approach a romantic who perhaps needs to learn boundaries around love, relationships, their romanticism, et cetera, I would never say, you know what, just just like believe in love a little bit less, just dial it down a little, be a little more practical, nor would I go to an activist and be like, I know you care and that's good, but just don't care so much, you know? And it's like all these approaches towards perfectionism right now are telling perfectionists to not be a perfectionist in some way or another. And it drives me nuts because I'm like, the eradication approach doesn't work, nor is it even necessary because there's a whole branch of research that backs up and has for decades this notion of adaptive perfectionism, which is when you use your perfectionism to help you and heal you. And it's not one or the other, right? I'm not here to be like, yay, perfectionism is shiny and, and golden and great. It's not, It's, but it's also not some terrible pitfall that you need to run and scream for the hills towards, you know? Maybe one thing that you're exploring is this idea that there is no need to attach a good or a bad label to the idea of perfectionism. But the more you understand your own use of perfectionism, your relationship with perfectionism, the more you can make peace with it and then use it strategically to move toward a a state of being that makes you feel good. Jesse, I would like you to repeat that so I can write it down. <laughs> put it in all my interviews. Yes, that's exactly right. I think of perfectionism as a power and any power has an inherent dichotomy in it. And to your point, understanding what it looks like for you to manage perfectionism in a way that is aligned with your values and what energizes you and brings you joy and pleasure and, and a sense of feeling alive in the world. That's what this book is about. Talk to us about where you start. One of the things that goes along with this notion that's happening in our culture right now of telling women in particular not to be perfectionistic, um, a corollary to that is this message to find balance. And nothing boils my blood more than hearing people give that directive to women because balance has been stripped down from its original curative context, which is like an energetic equilibrium. And it's been turned into this thing that basically means being good at being busy, right? So when we say that a woman is balanced, we don't mean she's hit her energetic sweet spot of equilibrium. We mean she can balance a lot of tasks and do a lot of things and not drop the ball. And that has nothing to do with health. And yet there's been this conflation of like a balanced woman is a healthy woman. And that's the goal is to be balanced, 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 balanced. And it's like, 
I talk about this in the book, it's just parrot preaching. Find balance, engage in self-care, find balance, engage in self-care. And and I am so sick of that message because in my view, balance is not real. It's not a real thing. We're sending women on this like wild goose chase to find balance when it doesn't exist. So what then? What does fulfillment look like? What does wellness look like? What I found was, and this was shocking, frankly, to me after delving in, is that perfectionists are not seeking flawlessness. They're seeking wholeness. And I think that that's what wellness means. Wellness means wholeness, not being happy all the time, not being balanced in the cardboard cutout version that we're trying to sell everybody today in the wellness space, but really feeling whole, feeling in touch with your quote unquote higher self, your regular self, your lower self, understanding that you are a whole human being who is alive in the world. And that part of being a human being is regularly, meaning on a daily basis, encountering disappointment, frustration, lightness, laughter, like the whole shebang. The word balance keeps coming back to mind, but it's really not about tipping the scales to me. It's about understanding that both of the scales should and need to be there in order for you to embrace yourself. Mm-hmm. You spell out the difference between thinking about the outcome as happiness and thinking about the outcome as meaningfulness. Mm-hmm. In your practice, do you find one is more important than the other for people to feel whole? Yes, the latter is more important. So I think we are fueled by constructing meaning from our lives, not just having you know one happy moment after the next. Perfectionists want meaning and you derive and extract meaning from your life by having any kind of experience, be it good, bad, happy, sad, whatever, and deciding what does that mean to me and who do I want to be now? And that's where the sort of juice is, is being able to reconnect to yourself and continually feel like, you know, there's a part of you growing and changing and moving towards something. That's what helps us feel alive, not like, you know, eating candy all day and watching Netflix. I'm going to say, Catherine, you know, I'm 47 and a lot of what you describe as, as the state that we're going for has come to me, I think, and please call me out on this if you, if you would disagree through a a sort of natural aging process. Life felt very different and far more high stakes to me in my thirties. And my perfectionist tendencies were at the forefront of the way that I interacted with the world. Does age have anything to do with how I experience these things? It's a great question. And I would say, I think exhaustion has a lot to do with how we experience these things. Exhaustion is a wonderful tool in calibrating values because when you're exhausted, you just can't do it all. And you have to make some hard decisions about what matters to you, how you want to spend your time and who you want to be in your life. And so I think, you know, if you have been grinding away in a manner that does not align with your values and you feel like you're hemorrhaging energy as opposed to generating it from 20 to 25, you're going to hit the same kind of realization that you might hit in your 40s. Like age to me 
isn't the primary factor. It's the level of exhaustion and the truth that's at the end of the tunnel of exhaustion that you have to face. And I think certain things that tend to happen more in your 30s, like having children, for example, can, let's say, expedite the exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) But anybody can be exhausted for a myriad of reasons. And it's also important to note that exhaustion isn't just coming from external sources. It is exhausting to try and be someone who you are not. That's like having 10 children, you know? And so the source of your exhaustion may be invisible to you. And I would really like anyone listening to consider that in a real way of like, because I think a lot of people have this sense of talking themselves out of their real experience, like, but I don't have a reason to hate this job. Something must be wrong with me. And it's like, no, you could be doing a lot of internal mental acrobatics and you're exhausted. I love that you point out this idea that something must be wrong with me as like this refrain. It is a refrain that I feel um, many women that I know come back to whenever their external circumstances are displeasing to them and they can't name why, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's easy. It's real easy for me to explain to you why I'm exhausted because visually people can see the, you know, one-year-old in the book. Um, But there have been many, many times in my life and in my career when I have had no idea why I could possibly be so exhausted. Same. I wonder if you might help us understand where like hidden exhaustion may lie. And, And more importantly, how do I begin to frame the questions that help me move through it or past it or accept it or whatever I need to do with it? Right. I think the number one question is asking yourself, what do I want? It's a simple question. Simple isn't always easy, but what do you want? Not what should you do, not what is the best career move, not what do your does your family need in order for you to X, Y, and Z, but like, what do you want? Do most people know what they want? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, and I think even when you know your wants and desires as a human being is a fluid thing. So what I want this year, I might have to reevaluate because it might not be what I want next year or the primary thing that I want. And also our lives are not static. So there are a lot of things happening around us that change what our priorities are and what we want. And in order to answer that question, you need to understand what your values are. Values are tricky (laughs) because all values look good on paper. It's like integrity. Sure sense of humor? Why not? But you've got to pick a couple to commit to in order to allow your decisions about how you spend your energy and time to result in the sense of like, this is me. This is my style. This is my signature way of moving through my day. Mm -hmm. It's kind of amazing how far away we can be from understanding who we really are, what our values are even. Because you're right, that list of values that you offer They'll sound good. Yeah. I mean, they do. And you can't have all the values be the most important values. And so values like friendliness, loyalty, you know, some punctuality, like some people don't value those things as much and that's okay. If you don't do that work, you're going to default to culture's values and culturally sanctioned values are like efficiency, money, rank, speed, like a lot of performance-themed stuff. And nothing is wrong with that stuff if that's who you are. But if that's not who you are, you're going to encounter dysfunction. We're going to take a quick break here. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about saying no to things. So stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Welcome back. We're following Catherine's advice today. And so far, we've taken a look at what we really want out of life. We've chosen the values that matter most to us right now. And that means we're going to need to start saying no to things that don't serve those values, that don't serve us. That's hard for me. So I asked Catherine for her advice on how to do this next part. Yeah, well, I mean, saying no to one thing also means that you're saying yes to yourself. I also think it's a great model for others. It gives them license and permission to say no to the things that they don't want to do. And it can be hard to say no but for me, what's harder, and this speaks to the exhaustion piece, is saying yes to a bunch of shit that you don't want to do. Or maybe you do want to do it, but you just don't have the time or the energy to do it. And you can't be your full self when you're exhausted or when you're resentful. And so I think if anyone needs a push to give themselves permission to say no more, think about the toxicity of resentment. Resentment is like carrying stones in your pocket. You cannot run fast and free or run towards other people or the things that you care about when you are carrying resentment. And we carry resentment because in displaying resentment, we're trying to generate a bid for validation of like, can't you see how exhausted I am? Like, can't you see how much I'm doing for everyone? Look at how resentful I am. And really resentment when you're in an adaptive space is a signal to recalibrate your energy mm -hmm. and think about when you say yes to all of these things, it's like taking a slice of yourself away and eventually you're going to show up and just be invisible. Meaning everything that you do is going to have a transactional feel. Your presence and your energy and the signature of who you are is going to be lost because yeah. you're not in touch with it. You're not connected to it. And so 
you can't feel connected to anyone else. And then you're going to go back to that reframe of, well, I'm doing all these things for other people and for my job and for whatever, and I just don't feel connected and something's wrong with me. And it's like this endless cycle. I can always tell when I'm on the verge of burnout, not because I look up and say, oh my goodness, I'm on the verge of burnout, but because <laughs> my life um, begins to feel transactional. I'm doing all the things I'm doing just to do them, just to check them off the box. And when it becomes transactional, I realize I'm no longer feeling connected to the things that give me meaning. But I right. often don't understand how to pilot myself back. And I wonder what advice you might have for somebody moving or attempting to move beyond the transactional. Yeah. Well, I want to make sure I don't leapfrog over something, which I don't think is talked about enough, which is like when you say no to others, we talk about that in the wellness world as if it's immediately empowering and it's not. It actually usually hurts or offends someone else and it's hurtful to you. And it also feels like you're doing something wrong and things don't get done. For example, if I don't write all the thank you cards for my kid's birthday party, because I'm like, no, that's not how I want to spend my time. I have this much time and I would rather go and visit my aunt who's sick, or I would rather do this podcast so that I can try to connect to a lot of people and help spread the message of my work. I can't do all things at all times for all people. And so when you say no to those thank you cards, just such a little thing, your 80 year old great aunt is going to be like, why didn't I get a thank you card? That's a little bit of a silly example, but it, it's a real example of that's not the only thing you're saying no to. You're having a lot of confusion around you from the people around you. So I think the more you can explain and say out loud to people, not that you need to justify your behavior, but just to kind of give people a heads up of like, this year I'm really focused on X. And so things are going to look a little bit differently. And here's some of the stuff I'm letting go of. I'm letting go of propriety. And as much as you can, you know, understanding that it's not our job to give people a tutorial on how we're changing and how that might impact them. That's just more work on our plates. But as much as you can, like giving people a heads up on that is a nice way to cushion the change because change is not only tough for you, it's tough for the people around you also. There's another phrase in the title of your book that we haven't explored, explored perfectionist, losing control. What mm -hmm. is losing control? Well, I distinguish between control and power. And to me, control is a myopic generic version of real power. And control is illusory. Like it doesn't really exist. There are very few things we can control and yet when we feel afraid, I think one of our first impulses, one of my first impulses anyway, is to just control the hell out of the situation. Like somehow me doubling down on control is going to guarantee a fixed outcome where no bad things happen or I can avoid something that is part of the human experience and the unavoidable. I think control is a big waste of time and a big hemorrhage of energy. And for me, accessing your power, which is about understanding the immutability of your worth. Like that's what power is to me, is understanding that no matter what you get done or don't get done, you right now are as worthy as the quote unquote best human being 
you're worthy of all the love, dignity, joy, connection, and freedom that the world could offer you or anyone else. That version of you that you have in your head that like sends Doug the holiday cards and does all this and does that and whatever and finishes the daycare applications early and blah, blah, blah. That version of you deserves the exact same amount of love, joy, dignity, freedom, and connection as the version of you that is listening to this podcast right now. That's what it means to understand self-worth. And self-worth is different than self-esteem. Self-esteem is about what you can do. Self-worth is about understanding who you are and what you deserve. And we conflate the two. So we wait to be really good at stuff before we allow ourselves permission to access all the things that self-worth grants you without understanding that you don't have a hand in your self-worth. It's prearranged. Like you're a human being. You exist. And that means you're entitled to joy, freedom, love, dignity, and connection at every second of the day. I want to talk about pleasure. Where does pleasure fit into our lives and how do we cultivate it? Why should we cultivate it? Well, we should cultivate it because frankly, we're not going to be alive forever. And instead of making plans to feel alive later, we might consider feeling alive now. (laughs) And feeling alive (laughs) looks like being able to understand what makes you feel really good and angry and disappointed and curious and really allowing yourself to experience your life like in HD instead of intellectualizing all this stuff. And pleasure is this mysterious like thing that we can't always intellectualize. You don't need to justify your pleasure. We all know this intellectually. We know that we're not going to live forever, but we don't act like that. And it's like, do you want to really live your life? And what does it mean to you to live? Does it mean that you do stuff or does it mean that you actually experience and are present for the things that you do? And I think we should all reserve room in our lives to do things for no reason. So that's number one. But number two is also so much about what brings us pleasure does inform our life in practical ways. You know, I always loved listening to people. I listened when I was a coat check girl. I loved to listen to the way people said goodbye to each other. I loved listening in every job I've ever had. And there was something to pay attention to there. And now I'm a professional listener for a living. I took that seriously and I pursued that pleasure and followed it and had the privilege to do so. And if you have the privilege to do so, you owe it to yourself to explore why it is that that thing is like a magnet for you. I I love that. And it leads me wanting to return to what is our theme for the year. Optimism is a muscle that we strengthen and a mindset that we can use to feel like Mm -hmm. there's possibility in front of us. So -hmm. much of your book is optimistic because it's steeped in the belief that we can change. We can fundamentally shift who we are to better integrate aspects of ourselves that serve us. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you consider yourself to be an optimistic person? 100%. And I will also add that what you're talking about has been coined by the pioneer of so many things, Dr. Barbara Fredrickson. She calls it the broaden and build theory, that if you can get to a positive, optimistic headspace, your thought action repertoire changes, meaning what you think is possible 
changes. So the way you act changes. And it's kind of the same logic behind why people do puzzles because we're like, well, I know this can be done. And so then we take enjoyment in doing the puzzle because when we think it's just a matter of trial and error, then we don't mind the trial and we don't mind the error. And so being able to get in an optimistic mindset, you know, it's not always easy for me, but um, it's always worth trying and nothing that works, works all the time. I, I learned that when I worked at a rehab, it's just like, you can have all the tools in the world and some days are just going to be terrible days. And that's again, part of being human. That's not a commentary on who you are or what you're capable of. It's just nothing that works, works all the time. But what you can do is surround yourself with messages that you want to hear that are in line with your values and not just messages, but like practical tools so that you can begin to feel empowered in your life to just be who you are in the world, which sounds so easy. It's so hard. (laughs) So hard. That was Catherine Morgan Schaffler. You know, Catherine wants us to see our perfectionism not as a beast to tame, as I said in the intro, but as a tool. Our perfectionism can serve us well when we have self-compassion, practice mindfulness, and put it to good use. So how exactly do we do that? Join me and Sarah for office hours this Wednesday on the LinkedIn news page at 3 p.m. Eastern. Or drop us an email at hellomonday at linkedin.com. We'll send you a link. Now, a couple weeks ago, I asked you in our very first episode of the year to tell us a little bit about what the show meant for you. Thanks for your thoughts. And I wanted to share just this one, a voice memo from Andrew Hunt. Hello, Jesse and Hello Monday family. Uh, I just listened to the episode this week on change making. I wanted to answer the question at the end of the episode that you asked, Jesse, about does this do anything for me? Um, Does listening to Hello Monday do anything? And it does. I know I've been open about it in the past. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if what I want to accomplish in the world is even worth trying to accomplish. I don't even know exactly what I want to accomplish. You know, it's, it's that place. Um, and listening to Hello Monday just helps. The tagline is about the work that we do and how that work, the changing nature of the work that we do and how that work is changing us. And I think that speaks to caring about each and every one of your listeners' humanity. So thank you. And I hope any of this helps. Be well, and see you at office hours. That's exactly what our show endeavors to do. Life can be a grind. Work can be a grind. And we, me and Sarah, all of the people here who touch the show, we put together every episode with the assumption that no one wakes up to be part of a machine, that we are all worthy. Today's guest, Catherine, sums it up so well that, here, I just want to share it with you again. You don't have a hand in your self-worth. It's prearranged. Like, you're a human being. You exist, and that means you're entitled to joy, freedom, love, dignity, and connection at every second of the day. This is the belief on which our conversation about the changing nature of work hangs. That meaningful work starts with embracing our humanity. Thanks, Andrew, for your voice memos. And to everyone listening, keep talking to us and to each other. You can always send your thoughts to hellomonday at linkedin.com. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. 
Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Rafa Faria, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, Michaela Greer, and Victoria Taylor. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dave Pond is head of news production. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I love front doors, and I don't know why I do. I can't explain it. I just love them. And every time I take a walk in New York City, which is every day, I take pictures of doors and I have an album in my phone that just says doors. And some people probably listening like that is the most boring thing I have ever heard in my life. But like, I just like them.